My name is Gigi Owen, and I'm a research scientist with the Climate Assessment for the Southwest program. I co-direct the Environment and Society Graduate Fellowship with Ben McMahon, who is a research professor with CLEMIS. The fellowship program was established in 2013 as an opportunity for graduate students to really practice the type of use-inspired collaborative research and science communication that CLEMIS is known for. The fellowship supports projects that connect social or physical sciences with the environment and decision-making. Fellows engage directly with project partners to design a project, collect data, analyze findings, or develop information. In 2021, we hosted three amazing graduate fellows, and today we are going to hear from them about the work that they did during their fellowship year. Up first, we have Mariah Bailey Stevenson, who has been working on issues of flood risk in Ottawa County, Oklahoma. Bailey, can you give us a little introduction to the work that you've been doing? I work with um, Local Environmental Action Demanded, which they call themselves LEAD, and we are doing an um, oral history and participant observation project that initially was designed to look at how people are grappling with flood risks in Ottawa County, Oklahoma, which is in the far northeastern corner of Oklahoma. And basically what is happening there is that there was a dam that was constructed in the 40s. And since its construction, there's this what's called a backwater effect. And essentially when there are heavy rains, there's flooding upstream of the dam. And the flooding is really, really dangerous and threatening to people living in Ottawa County. Initially, the project was designed to look at how people are, are dealing with that flooding and how people are responding to flooding. How did this all come about for you? How, what kind of experiences brought you, to do, brought you to this place and brought you to do this research? Yeah, it goes back to uh, 2013, really, I guess. <laughs> so in 2013, I was um, working with a coalition that organized to oppose the construction of the southern leg of the Keystone XL pipeline. And a lot of what we were trying to do was raise awareness about tar sands extraction and um, environmental justice issues along the path of the proposed path of the Keystone XL pipeline. And during that time, I met Rebecca Jim and Earl Hatley, who work with Local Environmental Action Demanded. And they were really supportive and involved in opposing the Keystone XL pipeline. And so we collaborated on some different events and projects. And and during that time, I also became more aware of the Tar Creek Superfund site. So the Tar Creek Superfund site is one of the most toxic and complex environmental remediation sites on this continent. It was a, a lead and zinc mining area that was abandoned. And when, um, when mining stopped, there was no cleanup, <laughs> basically. And so there are these huge mounds of mining waste that, you know, from the untrained eye look like sand, sand dunes, or but actually they're, they're mining waste. And so there's this huge problem in the area with this kind of entangled relationship between the mining waste, its impact on water, its impact on Tar Creek, which is a body of water that flows through Ottawa County, and its impact on communities. And so 
local environmental action demanded actually came about trying to raise awareness about the Tar Creek Superfund site. So um, I was already vaguely aware of the Tar Creek Superfund site, but um, in getting to know Rebecca Jim and Earl Hatley, I became more aware and we kind of collaborated on different environmental um, justice projects in Oklahoma. And shortly after that time, I started a master's at the University of Oklahoma and conducted research focused on how the presence of the oil and gas industry in Oklahoma influenced and shaped people's experiences when they spoke out about harms that they had experienced because of the oil and gas industry. And, and then I came to do a PhD program at the University of Arizona and continue that research. And I ended up kind of shifting focus. And I contacted Rebecca Jim at some point during all of this when I was trying to decide how to how to craft my dissertation project. And I just kind of directly asked her, is there, is there something that I could do that, you know, we could collaborate on that would be um, actually useful to you? And she said, yes. (laughs) And she was uh, really excited by that question. And we kind of dreamed up what became a vision for my dissertation project, which was a, a bigger project focused on how the remediation of the Tar Creek Superfund site had shaped people's relationships with work and water throughout that remediation. And flooding was one part of that as it is entangled with toxic pollution and industrial practices in the area. So that's how it came about. It's a long story, (laughs) but basically um, Rebecca and I just kind of dreamed it up after years of shared concern about environmental issues in Oklahoma. And her vision and expertise really guided and shaped how the project was imagined. Yeah, I think that's one thing that really stood out to me in your work is just this really deep connection and relationship that you have to to the people that you are working with in that NGO and and just that long-term connection that you've been working together for a long time on. So I guess the other thing that stood out to me from your work is that there were also, especially throughout the fellowship years, there were a lot of shifting parts, drafting and redrafting of research design and components. I think that that's a really huge part of like an authentic collaboration, you know, where your partners also feel like they have uh, not only a say in research design, but are guiding it and making sure everyone feels seen and heard. Can you speak a little bit about that process over the past year? And I guess there's a lot, a lot that can be said about it. <laughs> but when the fellowship year kind of began, it was mostly me and Rebecca who were who were working together and some other input from volunteers with LEAD. But mostly Re- Rebecca and I were working on, on the project and um, pretty quickly some other people started to come on board and it was a really, really exciting shift. And it definitely, I think there are a few things that stand out to me about that. And part of it is how it, it takes more time. It extends some of the length of the project, but it, it's really worth it, I think, in the long run. And so we just had lots of conversations, conversations about really honest conversations about what what we were interested in and also what we could actually give. And then it was really important to Rebecca that everyone who was giving something to the project was also getting something out of it in some way. And so that it was so that it was somewhat reciprocal, I guess, was her goal, her hope. And so mostly it just involved lots of conversations. And then of course I 
ended up actually leaving my PhD program. <laughs> and so that, that really shifted the project and um, led to lots more people coming on because I wanted the project to carry on, even if it was no longer my dissertation project. And mostly it, it just involved lots of, lots of conversations that are still ongoing and a lot of sharing documents, reading each other's writing. And I think it was really valuable because now the project is more robust, but also there are more voices that add all of these different perspectives that otherwise things we might have not thought of if it weren't for that collaborative nature. The component of dialogue as research, as a part of research, you just don't really think about that as a method. And it really, it really is, especially when you're doing these kind of collaborations. So I think that's really interesting. What's something that you found really exciting during your past research year? There are lots of things that I found really exciting. One of the things, there are some things that were just kind of unexpected from from the scoping. And one of the things that came up was this phenomenon in um, Ottawa County, Oklahoma, of fishing for paddlefish. And um, specifically, I don't know, Paddlefish um, are these fish that are, you know, pretty evolutionarily ancient <laughs> and, and people fish them and then they, they take them um, to the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife who processes them for caviar. And so they end up, there's kind of this incentive for people to go and fish for these paddlefish. And in other parts of the world, this has led to like near extinction or endangerment. And so there are people in Northeastern Oklahoma who are trying to kind of like thwart (laughs) this paddle fishing. And then there are people who also are really just concerned about paddle fish and have this deep um, relationship and care for these fish and their existence in this place. And then of course, it's also interesting to think about this phenomenon of paddle fishing and the toxicity in the area and water pollution. But I think for me, I was just so inspired and excited about the relationships that I heard about people having with, with these fish and their efforts to their concern for the future of these fish. And so I, I was really inspired by that. And I, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma. I already, I spent time in this area when I was a child and I knew nothing about this. <laughs> so it was just something that was like an exciting kind of surprising thing to learn about and that I totally didn't expect when talking about um, flooding and water for this to come up as something that people really cared about. Yeah. And it's something that's sparked this new point of curiosity um, for me. I'll have to look up what one looks like. I'm just, I feel like I'm wildly imagining what a paddlefish looks like as, you know, (laughs) I don't like, especially because you said they were ancient and like imagining some kind of like dinosaur esque <laughs> fish, but they look kind of weird. <laughs> cool. Yeah, you should you should look them up again. I grew up in this area and have these kinds of people have these complicated, interesting relationships with um, other beings, and I think that it's something that was just really exciting for me to learn about that I didn't expect to. Yeah, you know, I didn't expect. Um, and it's now a bigger part of the kind of the questions that I'll be asking and some of the like fishing, not just paddlefish, but fishing um, mm-hmm. that I hadn't really thought about before. 
it is interesting to to get you know when you feel like you've lived in a place for your life or for a long time and then you learn about some whole other component of it it's like oh wow it's fresh new look on this place that I thought I knew I guess my final question is just what advice might you have for other researchers or other people who are kind of wanting to dive into this world of of collaboration, especially around environmental issues that are so important to communities on a, in their lives. And I think part of something that stands out to me is, and something that was really meaningful for me throughout this process, and especially because there were so many shifts in my life during this time, was relationships with people and having really strong, building a really strong, um, honest foundation and uh, relationships with people in which we were as deeply concerned about one another's well-being as we are about the project. I think that prioritizing building those relationships and taking the time to actually to do that is essential and uh, really and worthwhile. So I think for me, one of the things, another thing is that um, when I when I left my PhD program, we ended up finding a new principal investigator for the project, um, who is Dr. Laurel Smith um, at the University of Oklahoma. And, and our team changed a lot. And I'd also say trying to envision a project or to think of it as bigger than just a dissertation <laughs> or just a, an output. And how it can be realized with you as a part of it, but maybe not with you at the center of it. And I think that that this fellowship and and the relationships that I I built with people in the project helped me to find a way for with these other people for the project to carry on, even though I was no longer doing the project as my dissertation research. The relationships are so important and really, I think, seeing each other as people and not just like, here's my, you know, the role that I have in my job. And this is the thing that I do. It's just, we are, we have so much going on in our entire lives. And I think definitely coming into any kind of research project as the researcher, like we need to, I think it really expands when we see each other as whole beings and know more about each other. And um, I think that your project really encapsulates that. So yeah, it's really nice to hear you talk about all the relationships and how all of that's, you know, how all of that started back in 2013. And then, you know, here we are in 2022. And the projects really blossomed into like all these other relationships too. What's next in the in the project realm? Actually, we have a meeting right after this. <laughs> so long story we you know drafted the IRB we drafted everything and then we completely changed it when Dr. Laurel Smith took over which has been wonderful and um, involved a lot of conversations but now the IRB is approved and we're going to start conducting interviews and doing more of the on the ground research and and yeah it's it's really an exciting time and I'm thrilled to still be able to be a part of the project um, but in a completely different way. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about it at some point in the future and see what's come of it all. So 
So, uh, well, I won't, thank you so much for your time and all the work that you put in over the year. And yeah, I, I hope to hear more in the future from you. Yeah, thank you so much. Next, we're going to talk with Simone Williams, who is a second year PhD student in the Arid Lands Resources Science Program. And she has been working up in Northern Arizona on issues around groundwater. Simone, can you tell us more about some of the work that you've been doing in the Coconino Plateau region of Arizona and introduce some of the distinguishing characteristics of its aquifer? I've been interested in um, groundwater, the nexus of policy, science, and management of groundwater issues. I'm from a tropical island that the or groundwater is mainly stored in karst aquifers and alluvial aquifers. And the karst aquifers are formed from water dissolving rocks and forming characteristic features such as sinkholes or cracks in the bedrock or caves. And these features act as quick pathways for contaminants to travel to the, the groundwater aquifer. So in the Coconinia Plateau region of Arizona is the largest karst aquifer system within the state. And I'm trying to learn from the experience of Arizona's karst groundwater aquifer systems in terms of the issues that stakeholders are grappling with, the policy context and how policy and management is being used to protect the sustainability of these groundwater resources. So you said that there are karst aquifers in Jamaica too. Um, how did you become interested in, in this work on groundwater in Jamaica? Being from Jamaica, Jamaica is known as the land of wood and water. So we're a tropical island in the Northern Caribbean. People tend to take it for granted that we're surrounded by water. And if you travel two miles in any direction, you're likely to encounter a water feature. So people tend to take it for granted that water is available and will always be available. However, while working in the environmental nonprofit sector, as well as working to do local sustainable development planning within government, I came to understand that this may not necessarily be the case. One, we are affected by weather-related hazards that have impact on our infrastructure. We have a lot of competing land uses that are resource-driven, such as agriculture, tourism, but they too pose pollution risk to our water resources, or we're over-abstracting our aquifers. Because of the features of the karst system within um, Jamaica. I recognize that we needed to, if we were to ensure the security of our water resources and long-term supplies, we would need to actually look at how we're managing, particularly the karst resources, because of the possibly higher contamination risk 
that may be posed to these resources. Um, most of the attention tended to be on the coastal plains, alluvial type aquifers, and less so on the upland interior karst aquifers. So that was one of my recognition. And I came to Arizona to study and learn from Arizona, even though it may seem like Arizona is so different from a tropical island. But my journey here started unplanned. Um, I came to Arizona many years ago as a tourist and visited the Hoover Dam. And I was just totally captivated by just how significant a resource the Hoover Dam was. And I thought that kind of ingenuity in terms of developing this kind of water infrastructure in the middle of a desert must have taken some out-of-box thinking as well as skill. And when I thought about wanting to equip myself um, with the best available knowledge and skills and to think out-of-box, because I think we can't solve our problems with the same level of thinking at which the, the, the problems were created. I thought, what better place to try to learn from than Arizona's problem? And particularly because I see arid lands as being kind of a living laboratory to learn from, because if we don't tackle our water sustainability issues in Jamaica, we may well find ourselves in a place where essentially we're experiencing the shortages and the issues that arid lands experience in relation to water resource management. Yeah, it's so fascinating that you're, you know, it seems like very completely different landscapes and climate and geology and governance. So it's really interesting that you're you know, I mean, definitely paying attention to those differences, but really seeing what can we learn from this situation to bring to this situation. That seems really ingenious to me as well. Um, so you started this research in the first year of your PhD program, which is an amazing feat in and of itself. How was working with stakeholders on the Coconino Plateau, how did they influence kind of the focus or direction of your dissertation work? I, I came into the PhD program having a clear sense of what I wanted to learn and, and the kinds of research that I wanted to do. My motivation to actually do a PhD came partly out of my experience as a stakeholder working on the ground in Jamaica and often feeling very frustrated that the information, the science, the data that I needed to drive decisions or to engage stakeholders to tackle the issues, there was, it, it, it was not always available. And even though we interacted a lot with academic researchers who were researching problems in our local area, often there was a disconnect between the research that was being done by scientists and the research information that we needed as stakeholders. So I wanted to uh, develop my own expertise and, and skill to be able to generate some of that information that stakeholders needed. 
and coming into an, an academic environment. Sometimes you can find yourself just focused on academic objectives that you have to meet to get your degree and to return to practice. So engaging with stakeholders in Coconino, it reminded me of that motivation that brought me here. And that was being able to do research that was relevant and usable to the stakeholders, ultimately who needed to act and implement actions on the ground. So for me, engaging with Coconino um, stakeholders One, it improved my understanding of what issues the stakeholders were were working on, what were their challenges, the dynamics between different stakeholders, and the processes that they navigated in order to try to get action to, to address their groundwater sustainability issues. It provided me with data, for example, So instead of me creating data sets that already existed, they shared their data and that shortened my own timeline to to, to get my research done. But I think the most important thing that came out of my interaction with the stakeholders was one kind of getting a grounding to ensure that my research is relevant and is providing information and tools that are usable by the stakeholders and that my research is actually addressing issues that stakeholders either are currently working on or providing information they need to address the issues that they are grappling with. Yeah, that's so great that you were in the role of of being kind of a stakeholder yourself and just coming into this work with that knowledge and experience is just so important for being able to do this work in a way that really addresses those needs of of stakeholders. What kinds of needs or issues are stakeholders dealing with that you worked with up in the Coconino Plateau? So they're dealing with issues like over-abstraction. They're dealing with issues of quality, groundwater quality or contamination to groundwater quality. And that in particular was a surprising um, find for me because my observation since I've been in Arizona has been that the, the, the dialogue about water, groundwater sustainability has often mostly focused on the quantity and how much will be available for use versus looking at the the, the contamination issues that also may restrict our ability to use what is available. So um, they they are working on trying to tackle some of the land use risks to contamination of their groundwater and understandably so because the karst system that they operate within are likely more vulnerable to being contaminated quicker than in other types of of aquifers. They are working to, for example, get improved legislation that will protect some of their groundwater resources. They are working to include 
the voices of Native Americans in their dialogue processes, which I thought was interesting given I've, through the literature, come across many examples where the Native American voice has been, or voices has been missing from the policy development or advocacy for groundwater sustainability. And, and of course, if you have voices of key stakeholders missing from the dialogue and the process, your outcome or your output is going to be less useful or, or, or sustainable. So those are some of the issues that I came across that they, they are focused on. And what are some of the outputs that you're working on developing with, uh, with your partners? I initially went, went into the, 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 the fellowship and the engagement with more so academically driven objectives. I targeted doing a story map where I would generate map data products and shared that with them via a story map, as well as developing a geodatabase that could be used to explore some of the groundwater sustainability issues or vulnerability and risk issues within the area. However, early during the fellowship year, their objectives, while our objectives coincided um, leading up to the start of the fellowship year, their objectives changed and they were more focused on uh, building awareness about some of the, the initiatives that they were already doing to sensitize the public and to engage the public. And that is normal in my experience that stakeholders' um, priorities can quickly change or can change in response to new variables that they're dealing with. So I found it very useful to remain flexible as I approached the, 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 the fellowship. So I worked with them to support their changed priorities while I did parallel work towards my longer term academic objectives. And I thought it was important to be flexible being that I have been them at another point and time. So I, I recognize that it was important to be flexible to enable them to get something out of the, the, the engagement while I too am able to get something. Yeah, I love that. But there are ways to produce things that are helpful for you know you in the place that you're at but also simultaneously for the people that we're working with and I think that that's such a valuable lesson for for doing research that's going to have an impact in the world. One of the things that came out for me is that when you're working with people as, as science scientists you also have to remain open to new, unexpected points of learning. Because while you may have gone into the interaction with an expectation of what your findings are likely to be, the interaction in and of itself may generate new opportunities to learn. So I think from my experience, that's one of the things that I learned during the process. 
that being flexible and adapting to the, the, the changing context of the stakeholders and their priorities and the work that they were doing also generated new points of learning and presented opportunities to observe um, real life processes and dynamics among stakeholders. Was there a particular unexpected moment that occurred um, during your research? I think there were several things that were unexpected. Um, For one, I was surprised by the level of engagement of local politicians in the water stakeholders dialogue. Because in my experience, that has often not been the case. Usually the politicians are last to come to the table but in, within the Coconino Plateau, the politicians, the um, water sector providers, the regulators, um, nonprofit entities, a very diverse range of stakeholders were engaged and actively pursuing dialogue. But the, 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 politici- the level of engagement of the politicians was surprising to me because I've often found that the success of groundwater policy or management initiatives often is determined by political support and political will. So having politicians engaged at every step of the way, I believe aids with the success of the the initiatives that they take on and and try to implement. So that was very surprising. Another surprising point of learning for me was via an engagement with a farmer. So prior to starting the fellowship year, my conversations about water within Arizona was pointing to agriculture being a a major point of impact on the resource from an over-abstraction standpoint, given that agricultural sector uses the bulk of water resources within the state. But from my engagement with a farmer, I learned that farmers are actively engaged in sustainable practices on their farms or within their operations, because they too are working to try to sustain the water resource that is critical to their own operation. So I was surprised by how engaged farmers are in terms of pursuing sustainable actions for groundwater resource management. Yeah, I think farmers are interested in uh, keeping our our water sustainable and having a sustainable supply for a long time to come. What would you share with others who might want to do this type of engaged research? It is definitely a fulfilling experience, not just from a, a personal engagement standpoint, but also from the standpoint of enriching the quality of your research design and your research output. I started off the fellowship year as someone who was new to an arid environment. I had only been in a desert environment for six months 
prior to starting. And even though I knew a lot about karst landscapes and aquifers from observation and working within those regions within a tropical island, there are nuances in terms of the, the, the car systems in a geographic area like Arizona and that in a tropical island. So from engaging with the stakeholders and getting an opportunity to actually get into the field or participate in stakeholder dynamics, I've benefited from learning things that without that interaction, I would not have. And those things that I've learned, I'm now able to incorporate into my research, both in terms of the scientific robustness of the design of my research, as well as looking forward to how usable my research can be. I would strongly encourage researchers, particularly young researchers, to try to engage with stakeholders at whatever level of interaction you can, because there's always going to be a point of learning that can strengthen the research that you do. I completely agree. Well, thank you so much for not only chatting with me, but for the entire fellowship year that you've spent with us. Um, It's been really interesting to see the work develop and kind of play out throughout the year. And I wish you nothing but the best in the future of your PhD work and beyond. Right. Thank you, too. And um, I, I, I do appreciate the opportunity that the fellowship has provided, um, in particular, because it has provided a space for me to think about doing research that is relevant, because it's easy when you're caught up with academic deadlines not to remember that as a point of um, focus. So for me, the fellowship and the space it has provided has allowed me to remain accountable to self and to keep on track with one of my goals for coming back to, to, to graduate school. Really nice to chat with you, Simone. And finally, we're going to chat with Leah Schramm von Haupt, a second-year master's student in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment. Leah has partnered with the Coronado National Forest to get a better sense of their fire restoration programs. So, Leah, I understand that this is kind of part of a larger project with other University of Arizona researchers and the National Forest Service. Can you tell us a little more about your role and the work that you've been doing on this project during your fellowship year? Basically, I've kind of served as a liaison between, I guess, the academic side. So myself, my advisors, um, we have an interest in forest planning and looking at how the Forest Service looks at defining resilience and kind of what goes into their fire restoration plans. And we wanted to make sure that we were doing a project that would be ultimately helpful and useful for the Coronado in their planning process. So we worked really, really closely with them throughout the beginning of the process and in creating the output, the ultimate output, to figure out what kinds of questions we should make sure that we're asking in our surveys and in our interviews with staff and stakeholders to make sure that 
our, our end product would be something that was useful to the forest. So I kind of felt like my big role was serving as that um, liaison in communicating with the staff and serving as that advocate to make sure that essentially what we were doing would actually be useful and helpful to the forest. Talk to me a little bit more about how you worked with the Forest Service. What was what were, what did that engagement look like? I mean, honestly, it just looked like a lot of meetings. <laughs> we just had over, I mean, it was several months, you know, that we had these kind of regular check-ins and meetings. It was I primarily worked with the environmental coordinator and a couple of the NEPA planners on the Coronado National Forest and just had a series of conversations with them about what would be useful for them. The nice thing about working with the University of Arizona and partnering with an agency is that federal agencies are somewhat limited in feedback that they can collect from the public. So I think this was a really great opportunity for them to be able to actually get an organized survey out there to get feedback on how they're doing and how they can improve and hear back from their stakeholders in an organized way about how they can improve their communication and get a sense of really how they view the work of the Coronado. You did a big survey of Mm. stakeholders. So the stakeholders are is that the public? Who are, who are the stakeholders in this? We identified stakeholders of for this survey as people who are interested in affected parties. So that's a term that they use to identify people that they need to outreach to during their planning process. And so they have a listserv of folks who they typically reach out to on landscape scale fire restoration plans and projects across all five districts on the Coronado National Forest. And so we identified that group of people, it's about 2000 people that we felt would be good respondents for this survey. How many people ended up taking the survey? So we actually ended up getting about a hundred, I think it was 182 respondents in the end. How has analysis been going? So, I mean, I've completed the analysis, which feels really good. Um, The analysis, I mean, it's a lot of data to sift through because we had 182 survey respondents, but I also interviewed 17 Coronado staff members. So I conducted about, I mean, most of them were about an hour long, hour, hour and a half. And so going through that qualitative data, as well as looking at the quantitative data from the surveys, it was really, really interesting. I really enjoyed going through the data and seeing where some of the ideas and perspectives of stakeholders across different stakeholder groups and even stakeholders and staff kind of align maybe more than I thought that they did. And it's just really cool to read through some of the responses and Everyone just has so much passion, I think, for the resources. And that's really, really, I think, heartwarming to see. So that was really cool. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the findings? Was there anything that kind of really stood out to you as something surprising or, I don't know, maybe not surprising? I was surprised to see, or I don't know about surprised, but just it felt good to see that there was a lot of support for fire restoration actions, for a growing acceptance of ecosystem change um, during this time of, you know, climate change and disturbance in our forests. 
And I think the big takeaways from the survey that I saw was really increased communication from the forest. I think stakeholders, I think there's maybe a gap there. I think both stakeholders and staff have really similar values and viewpoint, but there's some sort of breakdown, I think, in the communication. I think stakeholders sometimes feel like they don't know what's going on in the forest and they wish they knew more. And of course, I mean, I think everyone acknowledged that the Coronado is probably doing the best that they can with the staff that they have. Like we all know that a lot of these agencies are understaffed, but there are some really cool ideas of how from the stakeholders of how they would just creative ideas of how the Coronado could more efficiently reach out to their stakeholders. So I thought that was cool to see. How does this information get back to the Forest Service? What's that process? What does that look like? I put together um, a huge report. (laughs) So we have about a 45 page document that's going to go back to the forest. I'm sure not everyone's going to read the whole thing, but we have kind of an executive summary that people can take a look at. We're also, I think I'm also going to be able to do a presentation at, it's called Conservation Conversation. So it's like a public, it's a partnership meeting that the Coronado has with some of their key stakeholders, as well as um, hopefully some internal meetings. I can do a presentation to, yeah, present and chat about some of these findings. Yeah, well, that, having that kind of presentation will be really helpful in terms of any dialogue or feedback from your partners or conversations around your findings. And that's a great way to, to share all of the work that you've been doing. How did you, how did you come to this project? What, was, what led you, what of your past experiences or like how did you find yourself doing this work with the Forest Service? The longer story, I guess I've always been really passionate about education and science communication. I worked for a long time in environmental and science, like informal education, uh, a national park site and a museum. And I really, really enjoyed, I love working with the public. I love working with people. I love, I guess, empowering people to learn more about their surroundings and their public lands. And so when I decided to go back to grad school, I knew that I wanted to focus on federal land management agencies and how they interface with the public, particularly in the planning process. And so when it came time to kind of start looking at what research I wanted to do for my thesis, it seemed like a really natural fit. I was able to be connected with the environmental coordinator with the Coronado National Forest. And yeah, I think we had a lot of similar passions and the research questions kind of grew pretty naturally from that. So so tell us something that you found uh, really exciting during your research process. Yeah, so, okay, so this is kind of a story from after the research is completed, but I was in a meeting the other day with some staff and they're in the planning process for another vegetation treatment project for their fire restoration projects. And they were curious about how the public would view the different strategies that they wanted to incorporate into the plan. And that conversation came up and we were able to actually pull up the report that I had written for them and take a look. And, you know, the environmental coordinator is like, actually, I have those numbers for you. We can look at, okay, for this particular technique, you know, the public feels really in support of it. For this technique, 
they're a little bit more on the fence and here's why. So it was just really cool to actually see the data that I had collected being used for planning. It's such an inspiring feeling of like actually seeing this work being used in some way to help people make if it's a decision or just think about something differently. I think that's so it's the goal of the research that I do also. So I know that feeling and it's it's a great one. <laughs> it was really rewarding to see. <laughs> so what might you tell another student who was thinking about doing collaborative research or participatory research? What advice might you have for for someone who's looking into doing this? One of my main takeaways, which is funny because it was actually a question that I had for the staff in my interviews too, which was this question about, do you feel like research is informing practice? And do you feel that, or do you feel there's some sort of disconnect between academia and implementers? And I think, although that's been improving, I think there are still some gaps there. So I think for me, what can be hard to walk the line between is just what is maybe in line with academia and their goals, and then what's in line with the goals of your partners and the people actually implementing on the ground. For me, I'm really passionate about research that will help inform implementers and policy. And so I think my advice would be to stay really open and really listen to what your partners are telling you is actually going to help them, even if it's maybe not the flashiest science. <laughs> um, I think at the end of the day, like we're here to help them. And so I think it's really important to make sure that we're making sure we're advocating for their needs. 100% agree. So what's next on your your horizon? So yeah, after graduation, I will likely be actually working as a planner for the Forest Service. So hopefully I'll be able to take everything that I've learned from my research and use it in my job. So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, it's been so nice to hear more about your project and your process and just really enjoyed working with you over the past year and seeing this partnership develop. And it's just, yeah, it's great that you have these examples of how your work is being used and also how it was useful to you and your career development. Yeah, it's been really lovely to hear this story been a great, great experience for me. Great. Well, thank you so much and uh, good luck in your next steps. I want to thank Bailey, Simone, and Leah again for their wonderful work of the past year. Be sure to check out the Klimas blog, Southwestern Oscillations, for more information about the fellowship projects. I would also like to thank our funders and supporters, including Klimas, the University of Arizona Office of Research, Innovation and Impact, and the Arizona Institute for Resilient Environments and Societies. Thanks for joining us today.